You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is The Comedian's Comedian, the podcast that gets under the skin, into the minds and into the guts occasionally of your favourite comedians. And today I'm talking to Adam Rowe. Now, uh, this is a really interesting conversation. Adam, I have previously described uh, as comedy's most ambitious man, and we'll be talking a bit about ambition. He is a very accomplished stand-up. He is capable of Excellent things, and uh, as we'll talk, I saw him at the um, the the comedy store's fortieth birthday gig, following an astonishing lineup of comics and holding his own very very admirably. Um, now we are going to get stuck into some tricky stuff in uh, quite early on in this because uh, there is a bit of material that Adam I think occasionally finds himself having to defend. Uh, nowhere more so than in this episode. Um, it's about uh, trans women, and so you are about to hear two cis men having a conversation about a thing about transphobia, uh, which is not a thing that affects either of us. I hope people will be pleased to hear this conversation. I don't know that we ended up seeing eye to eye. I am pleased that Adam was prepared to have the conversation with me and we do so in a pretty calm manner. It's not a sort of baiting type, you know, those kind of like clickbait outrage kind of things. He holds one position, I hold another and he defends his position and I think you will be interested to hear it. It may be that um, people, this is one of those episodes which inspires people to uh, email me either accusing me of uh, going too hard on him or going too soft on him. But I would rather that we had this conversation, even if those of us uh, in this instance having the conversation are not personally affected by it. There we go. Is that that's not a content warning so much as I'm just flagging that not everyone's going to like this, but I'm glad we actually talked about it. Is that fair enough? There is more stuff from this episode on the Insiders feed. Uh, you can join that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to find out. We've got 30 minutes, uh, including Adam on his smash hit podcast, him and Dan Nightingale's Have a Word podcast, uh, some insights into Adam's writing process and also why he assumes he has ADHD. All of that and much more, including all the exclusive uh, Insider Zoom Q&As we've been doing with Nish, Acaster, Fern, Brady, Alfie Brown and the brilliant Self-Help for Comedians special with Amanda Donnett. So without further ado, this is Adam Rowe. Let's talk about um, ambition. Okay. Can we talk about ambition? Because I think of you, whenever I think of you, in brackets after your name, and I don't mean this in a negative way, is most ambitious man in comedy. Right, okay. Do you think, is that fair? You're an ambitious guy, right? 
absolutely. Yeah, there's no getting around that. And one of my uh, what my first sort of chortle review from Steve Bennett a few years ago that one of the 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 lines that I really liked was displays a naked ambition that would make most Brits recoil. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. Why do you like that? Because I think it's I think it's a true and b funny that it's true. Mm-hmm. Because so one of my favourite quotes from an old comedian or another comedian I shouldn't say old is a quote from Johnny Vegas, which mm-hmm. is just by getting on stage without before you open your mouth, the statement you're making is I am so funny you should pay to listen to what I've got to say. Mm-hmm. That's what every comic is saying by getting on stage at a paid gig. And then after we've done that, we're supposed to pretend like we don't think we're funny and we don't think we're good and we don't think we deserve to be climbing our career ladders. And I've just never understood it. And it's quite funny from the very start. So I think this goes back way back to sort of childhood and like how I've always been since I was a kid, which is if I'm good at something, I cling onto it. And if I'm not good at something immediately, I throw it away. For example, I will not play Call of Duty because I get shot immediately because I haven't played it for enough years to be good at it. I play FIFA constantly because I've played it since I was nine and I'm confident I have beat most people at FIFA. When I was at school, I was really, really good at mathematics from like the the age of day dot, like reception at school. They were like, this kid's good with numbers. And I, so I just focused on maths my entire time at school and then ended up getting into university to do a maths degree because I threw everything into that. I didn't care about English and writing and biology. Like I could do it all to, to a decent level. And I was, I was always quite good in school and in top sets and stuff, but I was always like, well, I'm going to do maths because that's the thing that I'm better than everyone else at. And then I got into stand-up and... Although I look back on my early material with complete disgust and it makes me want to vomit and the fact I ever said these things out loud in front of people is insane to me. I was doing okay straight away. Like I was winning gong shows, I was doing open mic nights and being like the best act on the bill because you're on with other people who are going to last six months and are never going to be good enough to be comedians. And I felt like, although I now look back and think he wasn't good at it and he was actually really bad at comedy... Things were going okay, so I clung onto it of like, this is what I want to do. I'd always loved comedy. I got into it with my mum from the age of like 10 or whatever. And then if I sort of was able to do it to a point where people were laughing at it at least. So I've always been like, I've always loved it. And now I've figured out that I can do it. Why don't I just say I want to do it and say I'm good at it and and just see and just be honest and be like, yeah, I want to climb this ladder and get to the top and do all these cool things that comedy can lead to. Instead of being the shy guy who's like, oh, I'd, I'd, of course I'd love to do that one day, but I don't know that I'll ever be good enough. Like, what's, I don't, I've never understood the the shrinking mentality of a lot of comics. Why do you, Why do you think you're different? Because that is absolutely it's a much more American kind of hustle, absolutely. right? And we'll talk about hustle because I think you've yeah. got a lot of hustle. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that again. I don't mean that negatively. I admire hustle. But um, but why do you think you're different from like the next ten comics who are more who are even kind of comics who might do your style of comedy that kind of like like uh, like your style I would typify it's quite an American style right you go big concept big premise long explanation of premise bang 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 right that's this type of thing you do well I appreciate that you you, you can sort of see that that's what I'm trying to do I I wasn't always like that. I was never really into American comedy apart from Richard Pryor until I got into comedy. Like the two comics that made me start were Jason Manford and Kevin Bridges. And if you look at my early stuff, you can absolutely see that that's the case. Um, 
But you're right. I, I've sort of developed uh, an opinion on comedy in the way I think the best people who do it do it. And it was another comic a few years ago, and I, I've, I've said this in a couple of interviews recently, and I cannot remember the comic who said this to me. But we had a conversation. I think we were drinking after the show, and they went, would you pay to see yourself? This was about six years ago. And I went, no, because I'm not the type of comic that I like watching. He went, so what are you doing? He went, you should try and be the comic you'd pay to see. And I was like, of course you should, because that's who you, that's like, you're, you're supposed to be selling yourself. You're supposed to. So then I, I sort of was like, who are my favorite comics and what are they doing? And you're not trying to nick their material or nick their, even their style. It's just, why is it that I love them and what type of thing they're doing? That's exactly what you were talking about before. And to answer your question of how do I think I'm different to the next 10 comics? I actually don't think I am. I just think I say it out loud and they say it in their WhatsApp groups. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> days. Okay. Yeah. I don't so think, so I don't na- think it's not just ambition. We've all got ambition. It's naked ambition. Is that what you mean? Like, that's that's exa- what's unusual. That, that's exactly what it is, in my opinion, is I think every single comic believe like, we've all got that self-doubt and I'm riddled with it in exactly the same way that every other comic is. It's not like, and I'm quite open about that as well. Sometimes you get an opportunity and you're like, oh my God, me? Really? Even though I've wanted it for ages, you still question yourself. And I think every other comic has got that sort of, I should be doing that. I want to do that. I should be doing that. I'm good enough to do that. Last time I gigged with him, I was better than him. They've all got that. They're just a lot shyer about it. And I just don't, I just don't understand it. Because I, I also find it completely dishonest. It's, it's, it's hiding what they actually think, apart from in their little groups where they're like, let's talk about this and oh he got this he got mad at the Apollo this year he died on his arse last time I see him like they do it like really shyly and what they're actually saying is I would do a better job than them well I'll say out loud I'll do a better job than you (laughs) it's funny anytime anyone mentions comics whatsapp groups like I'm not in any I I, I honestly think it's a it's a marker of age like my family doesn't have a family whatsapp and apparently everyone does now just because I'm in my 40s I'm in two comedians whatsapp groups um and you know, there's there's a bit of chat about it. every time someone you know is accused of something or gets something. There's always something in the group, and I, I I'm getting to a point where I offer less and less opinions because it doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. that's something that as what well, I say, as I'm getting older, I'm still 29, and I know people don't like it when people in their 20s say that. As I'm getting more experienced, I'm realizing more and more our opinions don't matter. And you've got to focus on what you're trying to do and what you're. So I don't really care if I'm better than other people. I just want to be better than I was last year. And presumably as well, you don't need a, a sort of a release valve for your negative opinions because you have your stand-up. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that's one of the one of the things you do is say the unsayable. That's a thing that turns you on as a comic, right? It, it's it's not saying the unsayable. It's I really, really, really like offering an opinion on stage that I haven't actually got and then defending it. Like a lawyer would. I try and sort of treat stand-up for my own entertainment like I'm defending a murderer that I know did it. It's like, I know he did it, but let's sort of tell you why he might not have. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I do. That's a really interesting analogy, actually. I've never thought of it that way before. Go on. Like, there was a girl who came up to me. She was working for my... So my management team uh, used to be called CKP. They're now called Blue Book, and they're great. And they've produced my last couple of Edinburgh shows. And when you go to Edinburgh, as you all know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, 
they hire production staff, they hire the head of the flyering team, they hire the flyering team and all that. And then those flyering team are dragged to see your show in the first few days so they know what they're selling. And one of the girls come up to me after the show and I'm mates with her now. And she goes, uh, I thought that was really funny. She went, I don't actually agree with a lot of what you said, but it was still funny. But I don't agree with it. And I said, neither do I. And she went, what do you mean? Why are you saying it if you don't believe it? I was like, because it's funny. I'm saying the thing that I would say to make my mate laugh. It, you, I think there's a common misconception that you can't build a relationship with an audience. And this doesn't take years. You can do this in 25 minutes. So you can do the second half of your hour-long show, however you want to do it. You can make a joke to your best friend that you would never say with this microphone in front of you or on stage because there's a relationship between you and your best friend where he knows you're not an arsehole. Mm-hmm. He knows you don't hold the opinion that is within that joke. Mm-hmm. So you've built that relationship with him so you can say something awful and he goes, Stu doesn't actually think that. He was saying that because that's the worst possible thing you can possibly say at this For moment sure. in time. You can build that relationship with an audience. It... it the, the longer you do it, the build, the building of the relationship, the, the more obvious you can be with that. But over the first 20 minutes of an audience getting to know you, you can set markers in place where you can be like, I'm actually quite a nice guy and I'm just saying this thing because it's funny and whatever. And then at the end, you can say the most awful things in the world. And they ha- you've built the relationship that you've got with your best mate where they go, he doesn't mean this, we're just having a laugh. And you can do that. And that's why when comedians get in trouble because the last four minutes of their show is taken out of context and put online. Mm-hmm. And people are like, how can he possibly say this? He's in a room full of people, this is whatever. It's like you didn't see the hour of work that went into getting that audience into a position For sure. where yeah, they're, yeah. they're not reacting like you are. Yeah, gotcha. Do you think that you can build that relationship in an unqualified way with every single person in the room? No, not necessarily. It, it's possible, but not necessarily. So you can get the whole room to be on side, but you can also get people who go, oh, well, I I have never liked you from the moment you stepped on stage. And fine, don't come next year. And that should be the end of the conversation. But do you think, because really, I think that's a really interesting idea that you can try and get a bunch of people, a disparate group of strangers in a room up and running fast enough such that they accept that you don't mean the things you're saying. I have to say, having seen some of your sets... I don't know that you are transmitting the idea that you don't necessarily believe it. Do you know what I mean? Like I you're, you're, you mean. There's, there's quite a lot of, here's how it is, here's how this is. I do know what you mean. And I suppose, I don't know what stuff of mine you've seen. I so, I've, for sure, I've, I've seen Little Bits and Bobs and I've seen Club Comic as well. Right, which okay. we'll get onto because I think that's like a a really shrewd bit of positioning that's very and hustle that's yeah. very typical of you like making a special of doing two sets in one night at the store yeah. it's very very smart so we'll, <laughs> we'll get on to business in a bit yeah so i understand what you're saying and that's why i was quite specific in what i was mentioning before about building it over an hour because at the comedy store on a saturday night you you get 20 minutes and sometimes the sound guy will come in before the show and go we're running a bit tight for time Everyone do 17. That's a lot harder. It's a lot harder with a drunk crowd who aren't there for you to build that relationship as quick and be able to get in, build that relationship, get out and whatever within 17 minutes. So something that I do sort of for fun for me as well in clubs is I try and start with the worst thing I could possibly say. Because then 
And this is a total flip, and it's so it's going to sound a little bit contradictory to what I said before, but I'll try my best to justify it. If you say something awful at the start, and they all laugh and stay, then everything else pales in comparison. So then they they then can't go at fourteen minutes. Actually, no, you just okay. crossed my line. It's like, well, okay. I crossed everyone's line within the first thirty seconds. Yeah. So why why are you still here to hear this joke that's now a problem? And I, I don't want anyone listening to this who doesn't know of me stuff to think that I'm this right wing. You should be allowed to say anything on stage. Problematic comment because I don't. I hate those people. I really, really do. And I hate that I get lumped in with them. And I hate that some of my favorite comic get lumped in with them. I won't say anything on stage that I can't defend. Yeah. If someone comes up to me after the show and goes, I had a problem with this, I will go to them, I get it. Tell me what I said that was wrong. And I think there's been one time where someone's gone, you said this and this is not okay. Okay. And I've gone, do you know what I agree with? Yeah. And I stopped doing the joke. I was like, I can't defend it. Can Basically. you tell me what that was? It was a joke about little people that okay. had the word midget in. Yeah, right. And they were like, that's really not okay anymore, and this is why. Mm-hmm. And I was like, do you know what? Yeah. And I just stopped doing the bit. Okay. I was like, because I, I can't... How, I- how how painful was it to let go of a bit? Was it a big, punchy, working bit, or was it half a bit, and it wasn't hard to say goodbye no, to? No, it was killing. It was working. I was closing some sets on it. But it was just... They were right. Yeah. And this is not so, this is not a new sort of idea that I've got that I won't say anything I can't defend. This is sort of what I've always held myself to. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a, a different opinion I have between other comedians who do sort of more provocative material where they're like, it's a joke, doesn't matter. It does matter. If you're being awful and a room full of people can find a problem with what you're saying, it's not funny. Yeah. It's gotta be funny and it's gotta be defensible. So but ninety-nine times out of a hundred, or nine hundred and ninety-nine out of a thousand, I don't know how many times it doesn't happen often that people come and complain. But I reckon there must be like maybe 30 over the past five years since I've started trying to be the comic I would pay to see mm-hmm. where people have gone, I didn't like this bit. And I've said to them, tell me what you think I said and I'll tell you what I actually said and what I meant. And every other time apart from that one, they've gone away going, oh, sorry. Like I had a routine, which is on Club Comic, mm. about Victoria's Secret refusing to hire fat and transgender models. And this was one of my favourite things that's ever happened in Edinburgh. So a couple of years ago, the, I think it was the last Edinburgh show I did, we added uh, late shows at the Tron. So it was midnights on Fridays and Saturdays for the whole festival because the, the weekends were selling really well in the other room I was doing. And it was still a bucket show, like the pay-what-you-want model of Edinburgh. And I'm stood on the stairs of the Tron after this show, and it's now nearly one o'clock in the morning, and I'm doing the bucket. And uh, Gail come up the stairs and she goes... Uh, I would give you some money, but the, the transphobia was uh, a line too far for me. And I went, uh, okay, if that's your opinion, I went, but can I ask what I said that was transphobic? And she said, you said trans people can't be models. And I said, no, I didn't. I said the exact opposite of that, actually, several times. And she goes, I know, I, I think I know what I heard, and it was transphobic. And I went, well, I don't think it was. And I did, if you're saying it's what you've just said... I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. And the guy behind her when he actually didn't say that, love, he said, he, he said this, 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 and this. And she went, okay, it was my mistake. And as a joke, I went, so can I have some money then? And she gave me five pounds. Okay. Because she was wrong. And I also understand that there's people who care very deeply about these subjects. And I don't want to sort of say that their lived experience of these issues doesn't matter or that it, like, because I'm joking, 
they should shut up and it doesn't matter. I, I understand that people are going to hear buzzwords and then go, no, no, this is a straight white man. No, no, no. You're allowed to do that, but you then are, you then can't tell me I said something that I didn't. Sure. Because, okay. Because I've worked on this stuff to a point where I'm confident I can defend it or I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. So I saw you do that bit, actually, at the store. Do you remember the 40th? Was it the 40th yeah. birthday of the store? Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, did you have to go on after, like, Bishop or McIntyre or someone? Jack D. Jack D. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Jack D, who smashed it. It was a great night. Everyone smashed it. And I remember when they called your name up next, I thought, fuck it, hell. You know, not good luck, but I thought, I wonder how this will go. Because you can't have been thrilled to get there and gone, oh, I've got to follow Jack D. Yeah. Were you excited? I mean, did it? how did that feel before you went? Because you absolutely smashed it. And I had a good night, yeah. How did you feel before you went on when you knew, like when you saw the, the running order? Did you, th- did you rub your hands together and go, oh, this will test myself? So I was more go- worried about how late in the night I was going on than yeah. I was worried about following Jack Day. Yeah. Because there was 18 comics on, mm-hmm. I think, and I was number 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And everyone had overran. And it it just, you know, it was a long show. Mm-hmm. And the audience, you could feel at points, were flagging a little bit because as much as they're like, oh, my God, it's Michael McIntyre. Oh, my God, it's John Bishop. Oh, my God, it's Jack D. It, that runs out eventually. And yeah. the, the show can only be so long. And I was like, oh, going on late is tough. And then Jack smashed it. And Jack's a hero of mine. Like, I grew up, Live the Apollo is one of the reasons I've got this obsession with stand-up the way that I have. Um... And I knew what I was going to do. I'd spoken to the store, so we were all supposed to do between five and seven minutes. And I was like, this is nine, but I can't cut two minutes out of it. Can I do it? And they said, yeah, just do it. Because they'd seen it a weekend, like a couple of months before. And I'm glad that I did because I could have done other stuff that was less the comic I paid to see Mm -hmm. and just tried to fit in. And what I on that bill, on that night, like to just be asked to do that, like, you mentioned Club Comic before, as you said, which we'll get into. I've always wanted to be our Club Comic. And to be asked to do the 40th birthday of the Comedy Store was an unbelievable honour in itself. And I just wanted to put my stamp on it, no matter where I was on the bill. Yeah. Um, and when I come off and I was like, I had a really good set there. After Jack Day, I had a really good set. And it's like nearly 11 o'clock. And I was very, very proud of myself that night. Yeah. To be totally honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should have been. You should have been. I like. I think the way you played it was really good. I think the way that you were uncompromising with the rhythm of what you were doing was really exciting. You came on and you didn't get a laugh straight away by design. You just started talking and building up to one of those big banger kind of premises. I have to say, when I saw it, I think that bit of material is transphobic. Okay. And I'm happy to... I'm really excited to talk about it with you because I don't think you're transphobic any more yeah. than... I think there is, transphobia is, I imagine, a very broad church with lunatic, gender-critical, kind of angry people at one end and at the other end, people that I would suggest, like you and me, who don't regard ourselves as transphobic but exist within systemic transphobia, whereby, you know, in the same way as we might be systemically racist whilst wanting all the best for people of colour in our lives, right? Absolutely. So let's let's take that as red because, and in the bit, you caveat it and you go, there's a lot of live your life, live your truth, all that kind of stuff. The problem I have with that bit, which people can watch on Club Comic and add to your 
hundreds of thousands of views. It's also available as a standalone clip it's own, yeah, it's on own, YouTube, it's own so separate you can find bit. it. The problem that I have with that bit and that I had at the time was that um, I think the, the premise of the bit, the foundational premise of the bit is that although a trans woman can be attractive, she cannot be 10 out of 10 attractive. That's not what I say. Tell me what you say. Tell, I, me, tell me what you say in the bit, because I, even though you don't say that, I feel as a comedy, as a comedian, as a comedy watcher, that is the premise of the bit. Okay, so I'd invite you to watch it again, and I'm now quite excited that other people might go and do this. For sure. So, especially on the club comic bit, by then, Victoria's Secret had hired a yes. transgender model. Yes. And what I say is, mm-hmm. and that's great, because she's a 10. Yeah, but you say that after the bit at which you've got loads of jokes at the expense of the idea that trans women can't be a 10. No, I think... You, like, that's a cake-and-eat-it moment. That's like, oh, and it turns out they did and the bit's fucked. Do you know what I mean? No, it's, it, that's not what it is. So, I, first of all, yeah, I say they've hired one and she's a 10, so great. And before it, although I can understand that it can be taken that way, Okay. before that bit... And that's why I think the full routine is... And before they hired that trans model, mm-hmm. I still did the caveat afterwards, which mm-hmm. was, I think they'll eventually hire a trans model. And as long as she's a 10, that's okay. The bit that is absolutely phobic is the bit that follows where I say, there can never be a fat one. For sure. Because there's no such thing as a fat 10. For sure. So that is absolutely a thousand percent fat phobic. Mm-hmm. And I will defend my right to be fat phobic momentarily. Okay. The bit before it is. It's not saying that a trans model can't be a 10. It's saying not every trans person is going to be a 10. And the fact that you're trans or anything else should not be the reason you're hired for that job. I understand that. But, and I, you are saying that. But my problem, the problem I have with that bit is that you are also saying, when you do that imaginary, there's like an act out where someone goes, I want to be a woman. I, I've been a woman my whole life and I never knew. And you go, yep, fair enough. I support you on your journey. And they go, I'm going to be a Victoria's Secret model. And you go, but Brian, I can't remember the line, but Brian, you, which, so you're already addressing... Your hands are like shovels, Brian. Your hands are like shovels, Brian. So yeah. by calling a person who's just come out as trans Brian, uh-huh. that's already like, I mean, you're, you're sort of dead naming someone immediately. That, like, that's not cool for someone to come out to you and for you to call them by their... But what, like, you're assuming that this imaginary person is mm. going to change their name. Yeah. Like, I, like, okay. Like, I understand what you're saying. Sure. But I haven't given... This person, it was totally fictional. Yeah, yeah. I haven't given them a new name and then gone, fuck Melissa, you're getting called Brian. Like, no, sure. This, this is that person's introduction to me going, I'm going to be a woman. And I go, okay. They haven't given me their new name yet, so I'm going to continue to call them by the name I've always known them by. I'll give you that at what I consider a stretch, but yeah, yeah fair enough. But like, th- there's... The point is you're getting a laugh out of saying, but your hands are like shovels. And to my mind, that bit is no different to if you were to say, uh, my Indian friend uh, wants to be prime minister. And I'm like, great, I believe in you. You go for it. But who's going to look after the corner shop? Do you know what I mean? You're raising the spectre of the, the, the 
like this idea that a trans woman cannot be a 10, that, you know, that you can't, that if you see a trans woman who does have large hands, that that makes her less valid as a woman, that someone's... No, it doesn't. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it makes her less likely to be deemed attractive enough to be a Victoria's Secret model by Victoria's Secret. Have you had to defend this bit often? Not to this level. I'm enjoying it, though. Okay. Because I love this challenge. And, like, I'd like to think everything you've said so far, I've had at least an answer in my world for... For sure. So, I'm I'm not saying that their modelling policy is okay or that I agree with it. And even Mm -hmm. if I was, it's not necessarily something I agree with. It's on stage. But that is what their policy was at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to defend it in a in a funny way without mm-hmm. being hateful. And men's hands are statistically across the line bigger than women's are. And that's not the same as saying Indian people run corner shops. It's a st- like it's a statistic. But you are using you are using as a weapon the idea mm-hmm. that that uh, someone's big hands will prevent them from being attractive. Will, will prevent, prevent them, from, them being- from being a Victoria's Secret model. Which it would, certainly at the time, before they changed their policy. Okay. I don't think we're going to agree on it. But do you think it's possible? And if we we use your angle on it, then we, we can even say in a traditional sense, women with massive hands are deemed less attractive across the board in a... This is a very generalized opinion, and I'm not saying it's mine. I'm saying... Men, historically, have been more attractive to women with smaller hands. Are you open to the possibility that that material is transphobic without you knowing? Is that possible? It's possible. But then this is something... This brings us on to another thing about people getting upset by jokes and the, the other side of it of people being happy about it. There was a woman who came up to me, a trans woman in Manchester... And the, this this stuff will always mean more to me than people getting upset by jokes because I think it's very ups, very easy to get upset by comedy. I think it's very easy to go that cross my lines. So that's not okay. I did the comedy store in Manchester a couple of years ago, and a woman came up to me afterwards. And I'll be honest with you, she said, uh, "Can I just talk to you about your set?" And I was like, "Of course you can." And I was nervous for a second because I was like, "I'm going to have to defend me bit." And what what about that made you nervous? Because I know that that joke is on the line. And there's a reason that we can even have this debate. The reason that we can have this debate is because someone can look at it and go, I I think it's wrong. And just because you think it's transphobic doesn't mean it is. And just because I think it isn't doesn't mean it isn't. There's a Mm -hmm. reason that this conversation can happen. And having this conversation with someone who has had that as their lived experience is more daunting to me than having it with you. Yeah, of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, we can pontificate all we want about yeah, that kind of stuff, it, but it affects us not at all, doesn't it? Absolutely. We're safe and we can always go, hey, it was just a joke. Yeah. So we're kind of, we have, we're insulated. Absolutely. In and this woman thanked me for that routine. And she said, that routine made me feel normal. The fact that you would joke about us. And I know other comics have had similar experiences with trans people where they've made jokes at trans people's expense, which I actually don't think that routine is. And one of the things about that routine is that it's very fat shaming. And what's quite funny is it's absolutely definitely fat shaming. And whenever anyone brings this routine up, 
they don't care because they want to talk about this one, which I find well, quite I feel, interesting. Well, to me, the reason I bring that up is because uh, I don't know about your credentials. You talked on stage about being fat in the past. I don't regard you fat. Maybe you were a fat kid. Uh, no, I, I'm still. I can take my top off if you want. I wear a lot of dark colours. That, <laughs> okay, that, that, that but that, me. but that's the reason why I wouldn't take you to task on a fat phobic routine. Even though, again, I don't love that routine, yeah. and I like your stuff. Like, and it, again, it's purely my opinion. I like your stuff when you're the victim rather than hitting targets around you. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's the stuff. I, that's the stuff. That's my predilection. I find it slightly distasteful when someone in a position of power mm-hmm. and it, it's a very kind of lazy shorthand to go punching up, punching down. But I feel like I'm I'm more interested in your routines when they are less at the expense of kind of uh, targeted categories of people. I, I know what you mean. And I, I've i known... Like, I love that bit in that routine where you say, you know that no woman in here is a 10. And you yeah. might be thinking, I am, but you're not. 10s yeah. don't come to comedy. They don't need cheering up. Yeah. Right? That's a lovely bit. And it, to me, that's, that is a... It's still a kind of on the line, but mm-hmm. the line it's on is a very different line. The line is like, oh, women in the audience are being outraged, but women in the audience aren't a kind of... Uh, they're not, they are not, that joke doesn't oppress anyone. Do you know what I mean? Like that joke, I'm like, fuck it, that is great. That is a masterful use of the line. And they're outraged and they laugh at it. But then what if, what if a woman in the audience took offense at that bit? What if that's mm-hmm. her line? Mm-hmm. That, this is something that I think is a, a, a common problem with comedians talking about where the line is and stuff is everyone's line is different. And there'll be people who do not think that routine is transphobic. And there'll be people who don't think it's fatphobic. It is. I'll tell you that. They'll, they'll think that. But then they'll say that that line is, oh, what, who are you to talk about the beauty of women? I'm a 10 in my opinion, so I'm a 10. I mean, will they really? Is that... I don't know if that's a kind of I've uh, had that argument. An analogy too far. Really? I've had that argument with women in Liverpool, to be fair. <laughs> Scouts women tend to be quite full of themselves, and rightly so, in my opinion. But I've had people go, don't fucking tell me I'm not a 10. I'm a 10. I believe I'm a 10 and that's all that matters. Sure. So they've picked that out as the bit that, like, I I, I sort of knew we'd end up talk about, talking about this routine yeah. today. And as far as I'm concerned, I think that's the best routine I've ever written. And I, I'm, I made sure, in my opinion, to cover all bases with it, which is why I don't like lines being taken out. Let's analyse this line when there's something that, qualifies it two minutes later in the routine. I like everything being taken. But if something qualifies it a couple of minutes later after you've already got that laugh, is that really a qualification of it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Isn't it, do you not see what I mean? That's like you're having your cake and eat it. You say something no. outrageous. No, then... that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a, a comedic technique. So part of the laugh comes from the outrage. So if you take the outrage out before you do it, you lose part of the laugh. Yeah, you would. So, so you would. So you can you can give an audience. Uh, oh, oh my god, I can't believe he said that. By then going, I don't actually think that. And then you can do more stuff, which is more intelligent and more thoughtful afterwards. For example, the routine you've just mentioned about no woman in years of ten. You can you can explore it a lot bigger while still being outraged in the first place. You can go, hey, I'm an asshole, but I'm not really. And let's talk about the actual issues here. You can do that. Yeah. And. That gives bigger, punchier laughs, and I'm I'm not going to apologise for getting a bigger laugh, and and then still explaining my actual opinion or uh, like 
deconstructing the idea it posthumously. Do you do you think that because that you because you regard that as the best routine you've written, would you, just as a thought experiment, if someone proved it to you that actually thinking about it now, whether it be now or in five years, whatever, if someone proved it to you and went Actually, that is transphobic. So following the line that I've taken, if, uh-huh. if you changed your mind about it, would it be harder to let go of because you regard it as the best routine? Because because your your desire is to get, like you say, you're not going to apologise for getting the biggest laugh. And I do understand that. And you get humongous laughs, right? But is that desire to get the biggest laugh more important to you than a little voice in the back of your head going, do you know what? They, they might have a point. Okay. This is going to be a slightly convoluted answer. First of all, my intention is to say, yes, the laugh is as important as the voice in the back of your head and maybe a bit more. And secondly, it's hard for me to answer it about this routine in particular because this is a routine that... I built over a long period of time. It took me ages to work on. I I find it very difficult to believe that anyone will ever be able to present an argument to me with it that will convince me that it's wrong because I've had this conversation with a handful of people, including trans people and including trans comics. Mm-hmm. And there was an interview in the New York Times about trans comics that they rang and asked me for a quote about this routine. Um, and what was I, your quote? What did you say about the routine? So they basically said the the questions were along the lines of it got cut down. They asked me about fifteen questions and I answered them all with like two paragraphs each, and I got about three sentences printed in the article. But the routine was essentially about the the experience of trans comics in comedy. The article, yes, about, yeah. And one of the comics interviewed was Bethany Black. Mm-hmm. who I've worked with quite extensively in both Manchester and Liverpool, both Northwest-based comics. And Bethany, I think they, the reason they contacted me is that Bethany had sort of name-dropped me in one of her answers. And one of her questions was sort of, what do you think about these comics who do routines about trans comics? And she was like, well, all of these people tend to be these free-speech lunatics mm-hmm. and then they turn out to be massive shit houses because as soon as I'm on the bill, they don't do their bit. Mm-hmm. One exception to this is Adam Rowe, mm-hmm. who I've worked with and he does the routine and we get on sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because I, again... I wouldn't do it if I can't defend it. And I certainly wouldn't do a bit. And that's partly why I stopped doing the bit about little people. And part of the discussion with that person who took exception to it. Mm -hmm. Um, If Bethany's on the bill and that makes me stop doing that bit, I shouldn't Mm -hmm. be doing the bit. I agree with that. So I will always do it. And I would do it before she went on and after she went on. And if I did it before she went on, her set was still just as good. And if I did it after she went on, my set was still just as good. So that was another marker for me of going, this routine works and it's okay. It's not affecting a trans comic set. And my set isn't affected by a trans comic going on before me. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things the person said to me about the little person was if there was a little person in, they actually use the M word. Mm-hmm. Um, would you do the joke? And that's what made me stop doing it. Because I went, no, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm because they'd have every right to be angry about it. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you that there are, that if you couldn't do that in front of a trans act, then you shouldn't be doing the bit. I just think there are other reasons you shouldn't be doing the bit. Hypothetically, 
if you discovered that uh, Bethany hates that routine and considers it transphobic, mm-hmm. would that of or Bethany or any other trans comic would I, that would that affect how you feel about it? It would depend on the conversation with Bethany. Just the fact that she doesn't like it wouldn't make me stop doing it. Not not like it, but like consider it. Okay, so just the fact that she considers it transphobic would not be enough for me to stop doing it on its own. It would take a conversation where she says to me, here's my problem with it. Mm -hmm. And I would go either okay or I would defend it the way I've defended it with you. Fair dues. So this is Adam. I'm glad we're talking about this stuff. There's loads more to come from this. He's a really fascinating person to talk to, a very hard worker, ferociously ambitious. And we're going to talk more. We're going to talk a bit more about whether aiming to be the best is enough to stay happy. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about Club Comic, which you can find uh, on YouTube by typing in Adam Rowe's name and the words Club Comic. And you can also follow him in various places, which are in the show notes. You can find the Have A Word podcast at haveaword.page, which is very clever. They've got a link tree there of all the different ways you can listen to it. Sort of thing I should do. Um, Adam Rowe Comedy on Twitter Adam Rowe Comedian on IG what was Adam Rowe Comedy already taken adamrowe.co.uk is his uh, website and of course you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for Adam getting into more detail getting into some and then increasing detail on the Have A Word podcast that he shares with Dan Nightingale which has grown to an astonishing success I believe it's been going for a year and they've got something like or a year and a half now and uh, they've got something like 6,000 Patreons at the last count so it's undoubtedly popular they are smashing it and they've had some fantastic guests on there as well all of that uh, chat and more available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders before we get back to adam here's a little shout out all the stuff i'm doing some of which you know about if you're a regular listener if you are a business person if you can get 30 plus people in a room and i I did one to 2000 people online recently then i have a presentation for you i have a a a speech which i can give your people uh, which is all about resilience and more specifically what you can learn about resilience from comedy and comedians where I kind of uh, distill the insights gained from whatever it is now 384 episodes of this podcast um, to help you uh, take responsibility for your own resilience so if you are in the world of business if you're the sort of person who is on LinkedIn then (laughs) give me a chat you can find me on LinkedIn Stuart Goldsmith Comedy Insights uh, or you can get in touch with me here Stuart at ComediansComedian.com or look at Stuart Goldsmith to find out a bit more about it. Right, that's enough blurb. Let's get back to this conversation with Adam Rowe. Do you find yourself defending a lot of your stuff? You've mentioned defence several times. And I feel, you know, I mean, I've asked you to, I've asked you know, yeah. to have a conversation about it. Before we even got into that, you've mentioned defence. You've mentioned... Because what you do, and I, I guess you started in Liverpool? Yeah. And Liverpool gigs can be tough because everyone, as you know, in the in the room is a comedian. And uh, when, particularly when you're doing stuff that doesn't butter them up. I mean, I remember, <laughs> I think it was Danny McLaughlin said to me backstage at Hot Water. Oh, I think about, I, I was saying to him, God, I always have trouble starting. I always have trouble starting gigs in, in the Northwest and particularly in Liverpool. He went, yeah, yeah, you've got to wank them off a bit first, haven't you? <laughs> Which I, and I, I'm, I'm proud now to have uh, gone beyond that. And I have a means of starting in Liverpool that appears to wank them off and then has a, a payoff. Yeah. But it's, I guess... It can be a very combative environment, and particularly if you are doing stuff which doesn't count out to an audience, but it but goes in and picks fights and wins arguments. Uh-huh. 
do you find that you defend that you have to defend your stuff a lot i i can't think of many uh, occasions on which i've defended my material um no and i i do realize that that might seem unlikely after the conversation we've just had it doesn't happen very often we're talking literally very dotted anomalies it occasionally someone will come up and go i didn't like that bit and i'll go okay well here's whatever that estimate of 30 before is probably very liberal. It's probably 15 to 20. And I gig often six, seven nights a week, Dublin, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I'm talking over the past five, six years. Mm-hmm. It's very, very few instances. I find myself having to talk about this sort of stuff more with people in the comedy industry mm-hmm. than audiences. Mm-hmm. It's more comedians who are... Because we're, we're in the arts and it's very left wing and right on at times and it's you know you're never left wing enough for everyone on stage and if you're slightly to the right of any single person's opinion you're a right wing comic and I'm absolutely not I'm a socialist for fuck's sake like the answer's no I don't have to defend my stuff very often but I also know that there's a select group of comics or comedy producers who don't like the type of stuff I do Okay. And that's okay, because I also think that a lot of their stuff is dross. Do you think, have you kind of had a, had a, uh, had a word with yourself? Um, Have you reached a point where you've thought there will be doors that are not open to me because of the sort of stuff I do? Yeah, but I don't want them to be open. Can you, like, big TV ones? Have you done the Apollo? I should know when you've done the Apollo. Oh, last week. Oh, yeah, that was it, because I said, oh, I don't remember. I said, this is going to seem opportunist, because uh, you And like, I did. Yeah. It's not going to be the, the routine they use, mm-hmm. but I did the Victoria's Secret routine. Okay. So I did a routine that's about four, five, six weeks old that I've worked on since I got told I was doing the Apollo. You wrote it for the Apollo? Well, I wrote it because I was going to write it anyway. But as soon as I found that out, I was like, right, this new bit is exciting and I'm enjoying it. So I'm going to try and get that ready. And then as a backup, I've got that Victoria's Secret routine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did both, but I know that they'll use the first one. Because it they both went very well on the night, but it was... I, I know they'll use the first one. Okay. Which is a routine about how much I hate GPs receptionists. Okay. Which is maybe more palatable for BBC too. <laughs> I, uh, I did see, I saw you did um, uh, Mo Gilligan's show, Latish, mm-hmm. um, to a kind of, you got heckled on TV. I did. <laughs> like, you kind of came in hard with some stuff about people's dead nans. And, yeah, uh, that and, was, and was... someone flipped and heckled you. And I was like, God, hecklers on telly. I got a heckle at the, at the Apollo. Okay. Because I mentioned football. Okay. And people were like, boo. And I was like, yeah, we support different teams. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit busy at the minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did the, so Mo Gilligan's show, he's doing a thing where they have a comic on before the show starts and they okay. just put it online. So it Oh, gotcha, it. right. So you went on the show, show. No. That's, okay. And they just went, just do whatever you want. And because I knew it was being filmed in a TV studio, there's a few COVID jokes that I've been doing for six yeah. months that I'm bored to death of. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll just get these recorded. Okay. And if it goes well, then great. And if it doesn't, then 500 people are going to see it anyway. And it sure, happen. sure. Okay. So just coming back to that idea of, of what, what things do you think aren't open to you at the moment? Uh, I don't think there's much. Because it's not like... Apart from that routine that we've just... Spent 40 minutes on. <laughs> spent yeah. a lot of time talking over. I'm not particularly controversial all of the time 
I will say stuff that is wrong that I'm very, very, very obviously do not believe. For example, on the Mo Gilligan show, we should have let more old people die. I obviously mm-hmm. don't think that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would anyone think that? What an awful thing to think. But it's a, a, a sh- silly, funny thing to say. Um, I think there might be certain opportunities that come my way where they go, look, you can't do that bit, which is fine. Um, I know there's a couple of opportunities sort of laying coming down the line because we've had conversations with management and stuff like that and obviously you do live the Apollo that tends to open a couple of other doors as well as you know get being the flagship stand-up show as well I don't know what what doors are open and what doors are closed but I what one thing I was talking to I won't name them just just because why name people but I was talking to a, a big comedy producer last week who found out I had just the Apollo and he, he sent me a message and he was like, I think it's great that you've managed to do this on your terms. He went, you've been the comic you want to be and just knocked on the door until they've let you in. This is what I do. Will you change that? No, not really. Okay, well, next year. And then next year came around. Like, I, I don't think it's as deep as the conversation we've just had. Sure. I, I, I just don't think it is. I think it's quite silly that and it happens a lot on podcasts, you end up debating what's okay and what isn't, what isn't, what, and what's okay, and what if it upsets this imaginary person who might be at the gig in six months' time? It doesn't matter. And if you upset some person, like, there's a line I do that I very recently found out might not be mine, which is annoying, and I'm going to have to stop <laughs> doing it, which is... which that is <laughs> It's so annoying, which is, you came to see me, I didn't come to see you. Mm-hmm. If you like, it's a difference between private gigs and comedy clubs. If you come to a comedy club, you're not given a synopsis of what's going to be talked about. Mm-hmm. You're accepting that you're going to listen to four or five people talk. That's your choice to be in that room. There's a difference between that and hiring someone from your birthday party, and you don't want them to talk about certain things, and you can tell them what a corporate or on TV on the BBC, which is publicly funded. Like you, you might turn that on and go, "Oh, there's comedy on." Mm-hmm. You know, then we're in your living room. But if you're in a comedy club, you're in our house. And welcome to the party. And if you don't like it, the door's over there. That's how I see it. So is that part of why you... Let's talk about the special. Let's talk about Club Comic, which I think was a very canny bit of positioning, uh-huh. whereby it, it, you kind of seemed to respond to the narrative often blogged about uh, whereby there's London comedy and then there's Northern club comedy and that's uh-huh. a different and inferior thing and it, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't impinge on the same thing. And it was kind of... Was it a response to that? Not really, to be honest with you. Um, I've just sort of... Right, so... The comics I sort of grew up adoring, as well as Richard Pryor, who was a big hero online from a very early age... Um, for quite a sentimental reason, which we can get on to in a minute, with Jason Manford and Kevin Bridges and Peter Kay. And these are comics who just make you laugh mm-hmm. all the time. And then Mickey Flanagan come through and John Bishop come through. And these were comics who just made you laugh. They were working class lads who just went on and messed around. And they were just telling stories from their life or the odd opinion or whatever. Bang, 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 bang. And that's all I've ever really wanted to do. And then I got a few years into doing stand-up and and sort of found out that that's quite a derided way of doing things. It was was just so alien to me. And then I managed to get a bit of traction in Edinburgh a few years ago. I got a 
there was one year where I wrote a show about a girl I'd slept with who died, uh, like three days after we slept together. And at the time, I'd only just signed with management just before the festival, so I had no production. But the show sold out every night because I was out flying and hired a team and whatever. There was a lot of word of mouth and it was doing well. But we got one review the whole festival. Four-star review, lovely. Pack up and go. But I was so proud of that show and no one important, and for the listeners, their air quotes around that, came to see it. But then the year after, I had management and uh, a publicist and that show sold out a much bigger room every day. Uh, And I also had a few viral videos in the year building up to that. And that show was like four or five star review. Like the judges were in for a few weeks. and But I didn't feel like I was doing anything different to what I do in comedy clubs. I don't, there's never, I, there's never a bit I do in Edinburgh where I'm like, I couldn't do that on a Saturday night. Cause I just, mm. I, I just, that's where I get my stuff ready. I feel I get my stuff ready for Edinburgh and for tour more in comedy clubs than I do in previews. The preview is just a chance to say it all at once. It's not like figuring out the stuff. That's what I've done for the six months prior while I'm at the Glee in the store. And it, it, it's all the same stuff to me. And then there's comics who were sort of a bit older than me. The one that always springs to mind for me is Mick Ferry, who is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant. You put him in any room and he murders. He's so funny. And he's constantly coming up with new stuff. Every time I see him, he does a bit that I've never seen before. And he also does a bit that I didn't see the last three times I've seen him, but I did 10 years ago. And he's like, I just blows it back because I, I liked him. I thought mm-hmm. I'd do it tonight because there was a baker in, so I did me baker bit. And he's just fucking brilliant. And then he goes to Edinburgh and he does an hour like that. And people are like, oh, it's great, three stars, club comic. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing what I perceived to be the same thing, maybe with a bit more bite, because I'm trying to, that more American style and it's more sort of, here's a big idea and I'm going to talk about it. But at the end of it, it's still punchline, 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 punchline. And I sort of felt a bit like, I suppose, guilty. I think because I was young and I had a decent agent and the right publicist and it sort of created this melting pot and you're getting four and five star reviews that are okay, great and they're being very considerate and they're, and they're trying to find narratives in a story that I didn't even fucking put in, into it. But I was like, I'm still a club comic. And then there's an American guy called Andrew Schultz who'd filmed something very similar and right at the end of Club Comic, I do put on the screen, this is inspired by Andrew Schultz's 441. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'd started filming quite a lot of me stand-up. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to film all four sets at the store in a weekend. I'm going to try and do the same set on the early show both nights and the same set on the late show both nights. And we'll pick the best one of each and we'll put them back to back and it'll be presented as it was filmed on the same night and I can do two twenties in the same night and I'll call it Club Comic. And the sort of... the the monologue that I do over the music before it starts is this is where comedy started. This is where the biggest comics in the world got good at it in comedy clubs. And I'm not ashamed that that's what I want to be. Like if I couldn't do a Saturday night at the Glee or close the store or hot water, if I was shit in those rooms but was going to Edinburgh every year and getting four or five stars because I was making some twat from Oxford to think about his life, I wouldn't consider myself a comedian. Because you can't do it. This is a paying up. They've paid 20 quid. Make them, make them laugh. And then, okay, if that can translate to, to doing hours and you can get a bit of heat at the end of the festival. Like I say, I, feel, I felt a little bit sort of 
fortunate is probably the right word rather than guilty. I felt like I'd hit a bit of luck. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not saying that my shows didn't deserve four and five stars. I think they did. I thought I worked hard and they were good, but I also think McFerry's did when he was getting two and three for doing the exact same thing. I was in a room where a, a comic uh, had a reviewer in, because that happens a lot in Edinburgh. People go, oh, I've got a reviewer in, say, please come out and see the show. And I'd done that for someone and gone down. And they killed for an hour. Bang, 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 bang. Three stars from someone that, that let's not name and burn any bridges. But it was like, what, what, what more do you want from him? Because it's not like he was going on and going, my mother-in-law, and doing... He's, he's not doing hack put-downs. He's not doing big pullback and reveals. He's doing stand-up comedy about his life and stories and observations, and they're unique to him, and this is... It's comedy. What what What's depriving it of that fourth star, at least? Okay, you can say it's not five because it didn't have the perfect narrative arc, and I understand all the things and that it works in different ways. But if someone's murdering a room in Edinburgh... At four in the afternoon for an hour with unique stand-up that isn't hacky. You can't tell me that that's a three-star show because I don't believe you. I do, I do not agree with you, and it's not okay. That's really... I mean, that's a very impassioned kind of response to that. I suppose... I don't disagree. I wonder, like, what's your take on why why it only got three stars? Why do you think that... Like, do you think it is kind of like a, a systematic... Uh, hunger for something that is different to just another stand-up comedy show. When that reviewer has seen sixty comedy shows, is it like what is what's the pro- what's the poison in the well? Why why is that situation? Why I, why is I, it I like that? I honestly don't know what it is, but it is there. Like I've seen a review of yours from years ago because someone it, you know when you're talking shit in the green room or whatever, and you got something like it's a bit too it's a bit too slick. It's too good. <laughs> what the fuck are they on about? Yeah, right. It's nonsense. Like, in a perfect world, people don't review comedy. It's a very subjective art form. I understand that we live in a world where it's going to happen. And like I say, I've been very fortunate to have some really nice ones. And when you get a nice one, you shout about it. Because as well as being this impassioned by it, I, I understand that I've got tickets to sell and whatnot and whatnot. And I understand that that feeds the beast of, well, he's given it validation by saying you know some of these reviews are bollocks and we shouldn't be listening to these people oh but here's my four star review I get that there's a certain hypocrisy there but I'm also you know I'm trying to I'm trying to get somewhere there as well and me going oh I'm not going to share my reviews all that's going to do is sell less tickets for me they're still going to go and every other comic's still going to shout about theirs um, I just yeah the, the, the club comic thing was just I'm not ashamed of this, and I think this is. I, I just, for me, I don't do stuff ever that doesn't make me cool. And it's also representative of your your hustle. Do you mean because you have you're banging stuff out there, you're putting stuff out there, and I suppose um, this might be a, a sort of lazy comparison based on your Liverpudlianness, but I imagine uh, you you exist in the slipstream of Paul Smith's extraordinary success with hot water. And for someone, I imagine for someone who has as gear as effective as yours and for someone who is as ambitious as you, that did that hurt when, when Paul started to, and I know you're very good mates with him, but did that, was there an element of it whereby you were like, why him and not me? Where that extraordinary thing exploded. Mm. Uh, not at all 
and there's several reasons for that. First of all, the the uh, as as ambitious as I am, the, there's also a certain scout identity to he's one of ours. He's part of the team. The team's doing well. Do you know what I mean? Like Steven Gerrard wasn't disappointed when Fernando Torres was scoring all those goals. Do you know what I mean? So Paul blowing up the way he did. First of all, it's very very easy to go. It, why it was him and not me and that's because he's the compare he's not burning material he's a hot water six nights seven nights a week at the time so he can go on do compare in, in sections one two and three get at least three clips a night out and that's mass content that no one else in the country or world at the time could compete with and on top of that he's brilliant at it he's one of the very few compares I know that doesn't have like a compare set mm-hmm. like he's in the room what do you do how did you meet? He's excellent at it. And I was just, I'm, and to this day, like he's big, a bigger comic than I am. I'm just made up that one of my best mates has had that stroke of luck to go with his unbelievable talent because no one knew who he was at all because he was the resident compere of that comedy club in Liverpool. That's what comedians refer to him as. I didn't know his name, didn't even know the name of the club until, it, until he blew up. Um... And he was always brilliant, and people don't like. I've spoken to people about Paul where they're like, "What's he doing on his tour? Like, how's he filling hour when he's just crowd work?" Like, <laughs> people don't realize Paul has done for for the five years, or maybe a, maybe like three or four before he blew up. He did an hour show in Liverpool every year, and it was never an hour; it was normally close to two. So he was writing constantly and putting these hours and big shows there. He was just doing it on his own terms in his own city because he didn't want to tour. And look how that worked out. Um, yeah, there's. I got I got very jealous early on in my career of the people I started with getting club work before I did. So there was people I was doing gong shows with that I was beating at gong shows, and at the time that seemed like a big deal. And obviously, we now know that that's a very insignificant part of the early stages of your career. But they were then a year later when we were all doing well. They were getting weekend club work, and I wasn't. And then I've since found out I was just not taking it seriously because I was 18. People were mm-hmm. like, oh, he, he, yeah, he's just a kid. Like, he can wait a bit sort of thing. And I'm sure people just, there was other people who just genuinely thought I wasn't ready or whatever. But I was really jealous of friends of mine, Brennan Reese and Pete Otway, are the two that spring to my head. Like, I started with them. And I was always doing as well as them at these gigs. And then they were getting work and I was like, I'm going to Warrington for petrol money. Like, two years in. And then you slowly, like, I, I just made it, it was one specific night, I made a very conscious decision. From now on, if any of my mates get something, I'm just going to be happy for them. Like, and I've never failed to do it since. So I remember when Brennan Reese a few years ago told me he got the Apollo, and I just immediately hugged him, and he went, lad, do you know what everyone else I've told has got a bit sort of, like, snipey about it? <laughs> it's like, of course they have. It's such, it's, such a, it's such a thing to do, but... I don't really have much jealousy anymore at all. Like, and I even don't, I, I don't begrudge people I think are shit at this getting stuff because I just, I try and, I just genuinely believe they're playing a different game. Like I'm competing with me and okay, you can say I may be competing with every straight white man who's trying to do opinionated stand-up because there's only a finite amount of spots on big opportunities and whatever. But it just, it genuinely doesn't matter. And the internet's there. 
and you can create your own stuff like Club Comic or a podcast and you can put out your own stuff in your own way on your own terms. And if opportunities come, great. And if they don't, well, then I'll just keep doing it on my own. That is, like, have you had therapy? Because that's some pretty mentally healthy ways of looking at professional <laughs> envy and staying positive and stuff like that. I've never had therapy. I probably could do it some at some point. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's just like, th- there's, it doesn't benefit anyone to be bitter and jealous. And it definitely doesn't hurt the people you're jealous of. It just damages you. You're not being you. You end up, ugh, why are they getting it and not me? Like, it, it's a poison and you're drinking it and the only person giving it to you is you. You're making a cup of poison tea and drinking it on your own and it, it's no good for anybody. I just don't, I just threw it away because I noticed myself doing it to me mates. Like, and it's like the thing with Paul Smith. He's one of the team. My mates, like, are me team. Like, if, they, if they're doing well, then we're doing well. One of the lads has made it. Excellent. Great great for all of us. If one makes it, we all make it sort of thing. And I wasn't like that for like a year or two. I was like, oh, why are they? Why aren't I getting that thing that they're... Why, that's horrible. That. Why, I should have, and I was like, what are you doing? doesn't matter. Like, you'll get it. Just work harder. Be better. I suppose one of the reasons that's, that seems so unusual to me is because you have such a great work ethic... And a kind of uh, an energy to put stuff out, to continually be uploading stuff and making things happen. And we'll get onto the podcast as well in a second. Um, I, I sort of, I assume when I see people who really tear into work ethic like that, that it's because they're, or it's often people admit to me on the show, it's because they're, you know, <laughs> or maybe they admit it obliquely, but it's often because they're kind of driven by jealousy or they're driven by like they have to win there's some sort of desperation there like i can't relax unless i prove to these people i stick it to these people or i overcome these people so that's that seems quite unusual to me so you're asking sort of where the work ethic comes from if it's not to so i'm very competitive and what i've managed to do is make that competition sort of with myself rather than with other people so I'll be honest with you, yeah, when I started stand-up, I wanted to be on every single TV show and I'd have done anything it took to be the guy on Celebrity Juice and then Safe Word and then 8 out of 10. I'd have done anything to be that guy. And then I realised that's absolutely not what I want. What I'm craving, really, is people thinking I'm good. And because when I, was, when I started, I was 18 and my only real experience of comedy was on the telly, that was my marker of they are good. They're on telly, therefore they are good. So that's why I wanted to be on it, because I wanted people to think I'm good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? This is good. Again, this is great therapy stuff. <laughs> this is great. This is a great way of looking at it, because often you end up, um, you you kind of, you create a little box, uh, thanks to Amanda Donnett, my friend and uh, psychologist, uh, for telling me about this. Uh, I think it's they're called relational frames. You create an idea of like, I want this, this particular thing that's in this box, because it will satisfy some urge in me. Yeah. And then you kind of, mistake the box for something else that appears to prove it and you end up chasing the something else Mm -hmm. so to recognize actually i'm not chasing the fact of being on tv it's what tv means to me which is success and self expression and self-actualization those things to go after those rather than the trappings of those yeah and then i think for a while i sort of was like oh i want to be doing these big tours because that means you're good yeah and then what i genuinely want now and I think Big Tours sort of comes as a byproduct of this. I want to be good. 
And I want I want to think I'm good. The, the, the way good is wrong. I want to think I'm great. And I want other people to think I'm great. I want to get... I'm not going to stop doing this. Like, I'm 29. I've got another 25 to 30 years of doing stand-up in me. That's a long time to progress and get somewhere. I've only been going 11 so far. And, you know, if you look at the type of comic I was and how that's developed and how I've got better at this. And then you look at... I, I want... In 20 years, people to be like, who's your favourite comedian of all time? And people are like, oh, well, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy, Adam Rowe was up. Like, I want to be in that conversation. And I'm not even saying I will be, but I'm saying if I aim for that, then I'm going to be pretty good at it. And I'm not like, that. that's sort of the, it sort of ties into what we were talking about before, about the doors being open. Like, if if a door has to be closed for me to become the comic that I want to be, that doesn't matter to me anymore because I can't be the, I can't be great in my opinion by going through that door. So it's, it's a good job. It's closed. Does this mean that in your, and we'll come onto the, we'll come onto the podcast now because the, the success of have a word since it started at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it started January of 2020. Oh, January, 2020. That has now propelled you to a situation where I think I listened to the, the Helen Bauer episode on which you said uh, that you were get like across various platforms, you're getting like 100,000 listeners a week. And that's extraordinary within within a year. That's amazing. Um, or what year is it now? A year and a half. But um, that now, and I know Dan Nightingale is going on tour and is in the position yes. for the first time where he can tour. Do like that, I yeah. remember seeing Dan split an hour with Josie Long way back when, like yeah. a long time. Dan's been venture. great for a long, long time. Yeah. And it's, it's afforded him the opportunity to perform to an audience of lids who are completely, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Who are like completely, t- I mean, presumably by now, some people have got their logo tattooed on themselves. And oh, they have, like, yeah. There's, sure. two, there's <laughs> two tattoos, so. That you know about. Yeah. Um, so that's like an incredible kind of a success. And in many ways, it's the it's the podcast comedian, it's the comedian's podcast dream, whereby it requires no research and you get to fuck about with your mate and yes. riff for hours at a time. Yeah. And you're going rogue and length on the episodes and just kind of press and record and go for it. Yeah. So Dan's in a position now where he's able to tour at that. Now, have you you've been touring already? I've done three national tours. So do you anticipate, this is a kind of curveball question, do you anticipate that as the fan base grows because of the podcast, the, you're going to hit that problem whereby the audience give you an easier ride because they know and like you? 100%. Will that impede your progress to becoming great? No, because I will never not do the clubs. Okay, okay, great. So the the randomness of the audience in the clubs is part of what's attractive. Yeah. I, like, I think this is why the American comics, in my opinion, are quite some distance better than our best. Or certainly, like, the best is the wrong... It's, it's very complicated, but, like, our top comics who sell the most tickets... So I'm, I'm thinking McIntyre, Flanagan, Manford. I'm talking about those guys for a minute... They do their tour and they take a year off mm-hmm. and then they go back and they do whatever and uh, they'll then do an art centre tour to get ready, work in progress and then they go back to theatres and then eventually arenas. I opened for Bill Bear the Royal Albert Hall and he taped Paper Tiger that night, his special. The last two nights he was doing that tour. The week after, he was with notes on stage at the comedy store in mm-hmm. LA because mm-hmm. in his head, that's done. Let's go back to the gym. Let's go and figure this next bit out. 
that's my mindset. You you finish your thing, and this is what a lot of comics who aren't at that Manford McIntyre level do, like the Edinburgh comics, I suppose. The 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 yous and me's who are trying to you know trying to get up to that level where you're selling a lot of tickets, but. We finish Edinburgh, you do maybe a small tour with it, and then you start writing your next Edinburgh show. Mm-hmm. I want to do that forever. I want to finish a tour, maybe take a holiday, maybe a month maximum, and then I'm back at Hot Water and the Frog and Bucket and the Manchester Store and the little pub gigs around the Northwest, and then come down here and do Top Secret and the boat. And I love comedy clubs. I, I adore being in them, especially purpose-built ones. Like... And I think that's how you stay good and get better is you go back to the people who don't know you. You can become very, very safe just performing to people who already like you. And it's such a noticeable difference between a comedy club and your crowd. If we asked Dan, what would he say are your strengths and weaknesses on the podcast? My strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. Admin. I do nothing. Like, I turn up and go home. Dan does all the prep. He preps the questions from the listeners. He does that side of it. I book the guests and I sort the sponsors, but I'm quite slack with getting the sponsors okay. invoices and stuff done. I'm just dreadful with it. ADHD. Um, he'll tell you admin is my weakness. And I think, I think he'd say my strength is just my ability to see the where we can get some bullshit out of. Or like a way to sort of, like, I'm so I'm not always playing a card, but sometimes I'm playing up to like yesterday we were talking about he might have to go to a high school reunion, and no, how did it come up? So the school I went to in Liverpool has produced some quite famous people. Stephen Gerrard went to our school. The boxer David Price, the new UFC superstar Paddy the Baddy Pimblet, went to Cardinal <laughs> Heenan, um, and. I'm not up to date with UFC. I was for a little while. But I've, ne- I've never heard of Paddy the Baddy. Oh, he's phenomenal. And he's he's a future champion. Um, but so we were talking about that and Dan was like, Carl said to Dan, do you think you're the most successful person from your high school? And Dan said, well, there's a guy who works on the Hadron Collider. The Hadron Collider in Switzerland, yeah. so probably not. So that's a pretty inane conversation. And what I did was go, yeah, but what does he do? Like, is he like the cleaner? And Dan was like, well, no, he's a physicist. And then I was like, I'm sure you've got to be a physicist to be a cleaner there, though. I'm sure they don't just let, like, Janice and the girls come and clean the Hadron Collider. And Dan is then sort of defending his mate while I'm being ridiculous and claiming that Dan Nightingale has made more of his life than a scientist working on the Hadron Collider. Okay. So that, I think, is my strength, is offering an opinion I don't actually have. Yeah, got it. In okay. the pursuit of humour. Okay, okay. So just coming back to, to round off, coming back to something you said at the very beginning, which is you talked about you could look back at your material from the first five years and think, oh, God, that's terrible. Yeah. What what aspect of it? All of it. So there's, it, first of all, it's bad stand-up comedy. It's pullback and reveals and one-liners. And there's also sexism and... Like, one of the jokes I said early on, I've mentioned this on Have A Word, it's on my first ever gig, which I've got a video of, which I actually can't find the login for. And thank God, because we promised when we hit 5,000 YouTube subscribers that we would put it on the Have A Word um, YouTube. And I can't find the login to put it on. So I'm really glad 
because it's so one of the jokes is something like and please forgive me I was an 18 year old kid who had no experience of anything um, something like uh, me, me mates you know all my mates have got beds the only bed I've got just sits in its cage all day making noises she calls it the kitchen but whatever and it's just vomit inducing horrendous shit and it's just embarrassing that I I I ever thought that would be okay to say out loud. But I grew up like on a council estate in Liverpool where there's men who make sexist jokes in the pub, the parish club. Hey, I've got one for you. Like, I'm not defending it. I can't defend it, which is why I don't do it anymore. <laughs> so it, if, it's just awful. It's just bad. If you had if you found a way to rework that joke such that it exploded in a contemporary comedy club would the sexism in it prevent you from doing it or yeah. would you go ah do you know what it's all about making people laugh it's just a no, joke no because I can't defend it okay and that that is and always will be my line even and when I say I can't defend it I can't defend it to myself yeah like that debate we had earlier I know I haven't convinced you that I'm right but I'm convinced I'm right and that's what I need to be able to do and that's where my line is. Do, can I get to the end of a conversation and we can agree to disagree? Then I'll still do the bit. If I can't, if you convince me I'm absolutely wrong, I'll stop doing it. Or if I convince you I'm right, I'll keep doing it as well, obviously. Are you happy? Yeah. I am. And five years ago I wasn't and I wouldn't have been where I am now and that seems insane because things are going very well. Oh, that's interesting. Five years ago, you wouldn't have been happy with the the success you're currently enjoying because your your standards for what make what is good enough yeah. were different. Were kind of unrealistic, or I think it's just like I've just sort of learned to appreciate what's happening rather than what's maybe going to happen. So, like, I've just done live the Apollo to the show that made me love comedy. I've got a podcast that's got the biggest Patreon for a comedy podcast in the whole of the UK. Like, we, there's thousands of people listening to me talk about me bumhole every week. Like, I'm going to do stand-up tonight at the Comedy Store in London, which is the home of UK comedy, and I get to cram in top secret on my way. Like, how many people would kill to be in that position? It doesn't matter that I haven't done Mock the Week or that I haven't done the other thing yet or something else might not happen. It's just like... This is quite a good way to earn a living. And if this is all it ends up being forever and it's like there's no progression, as long as I keep getting better as a comic, if I do this forever, I'll be happy. You supported Bill Burr. You love American comedy. Have you done stand-up in America? Yes. And does it work in yes. America? Does the accent work? Yeah, they all think I'm Irish or Scottish. <laughs> including the comics. Was it a concern going over there? No. Like, do they do Americans have an idea of what a scouser is? Well, the Beatles are quite famous. Oh, right. yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think they said they're not famous for... Like, they didn't sing in a scouse accent. No, no. They did a few interviews, and but they're very mellow scouse anyway. They're south Liverpool. Yeah. And that's a ve- I'm north Liverpool, and it's okay. a very different accent, that. Like... Our, our, our mine's quite sharp whereas then you get the Ringo Star away from the bottom half of the city where it's a lot slower like I'm very what do you want for your tea you're like what are we having for dinner like yeah. it's there's a different thing but it was fine I, I, I naturally slow down a bit whenever I'm out of Liverpool at all Um, 
But the accent was fine. The stand-up work, apart from one reference. So I have a bit about uh, talk, giving a homeless guy some money and it's at, at the start of Club yeah, Comic. Yeah, and bit, yeah. the, the girl going, you should buy him food. And I'm like, well, I think he wants cider. And it always gets a big laugh. And it got fuck all two nights in a row in New York. And the first night I was like, I'm tired and maybe I just didn't deliver it right. Because I was, I had jet lag. I literally, I arrived in New York, put me bag in the hotel and went to a gig and left me girlfriend in the, me now ex-girlfriend in the hotel. Um, and I was like, oh, maybe I just didn't do it right. And then, because the rest of the set was fine. That didn't work. And the second night, um, I did it again and it didn't work. And I said to another comic on the bill who I knew, um, I went, why is that joke not working? Because it didn't work last night, but it, it still makes sense to me. You have homeless people here. You, like, of course they want alcohol. They don't want food. Like, I'm not saying whatever, but as a joke it makes sense it works and even uh, uh, homeless people over here they don't drink that's like a middle class summer drink <laughs> so they okay. drink like whiskey and spirits so say whiskey and I did another gig that night and said whiskey and every other gig while I was over there said whiskey and it worked every time so that's the only thing that needs to cha- needed to change was just that one reference because there's people looking at me going why would a homeless guy drink cider? <laughs> <laughs> so are you having, a, have you got plans and you're having conversations towards tackling America? Uh, very tentative conversations. Very sort of early days conversations. I want to gig in America. The reason I did the gigs when I was out there was because I would like to go to New York and LA for like a week each, twice a year and just do all the gigs, do all the podcasts and come home and if opportunities come from it then great and if they don't then they don't um i would like to keep my oar in as so to say and then obviously if if bigger things come of it then great um i just i i like the idea i it's it's like i've said a couple of times i love comedy clubs and the comedy store in new york and the comedy store in la and new york comedy but they're just they, they've just got a comedy clubs just have this special smell and feel to them to me it's just there's humour in the walls and it's just part of the identity of the building you're in it's just it's where what we do is supposed to be done and you can do it in big theatres and arenas and pubs and stuff but there's just something different about those rooms for me so I love playing them and I if, whenever I get the opportunity to do them I would always do them thanks man thanks for having us So that was Adam Rowe. Thank you very much to Adam for coming onto the show. Remember, you can go to adamrowe.co.uk to find out more about him or haveaword.page, haveaword.page to find out all about the Have A Word podcast, which I'm pretty sure will feature as an effective mouth of the funnel to get you uh, into finding all you need to about his comedy. This is at ComComPod on Twitter at Instagram. You can go to comedianscomedian.com to find out more about the podcast or go to stuartgoldsmith.com to find out more about uh, the resilience work I do, the authenticity presentations, all of that kind of businessy stuff. Plus, if you are booking for your uh, Christmas event, if you're having some online or hybrid Christmas event, uh, get in touch with me about that because we had a tremendous December last year and there's no reason why we can't do it again. Right, that's all of that. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for the extra bits. Half an hour more of Adam on there. And thank you once again to Adam. Thanks to Nathan Wood for uh, uploading and producing the show. Your podcast consultant is Peter Dobbing. The logging was by Jake Crossland and the music is, as ever, by Rob Smouten. No post-amble this week. 
far too much to do. I'm looking forward to a big post-amble debrief. Oh, maybe I should do it now. It'll only take two minutes. It's bath time, but not for me. Um, but just in brief, what an incredible time I had doing the Jimmy Carr book tour, interviewing Jimmy um, uh, for, as I now call him, <laughs> for interviewing Jimmy uh, for an hour on stage in these incredible kind of 2,000-seater venues. Um, he'd do an hour of stand-up and then there'd be a break and then I'd go on and uh, an interview him for an hour and we'd kind of riff this interview about the book. And it was, thank God, the book's great because uh, it, it made it easy and fun and it was a real pleasure working with him and just amazing to be in the slipstream, you know, in the vicinity of someone who is so ferociously hard-working. Very, very funny. Just a, Just an absolutely superb comedian like just the amount the sheer volume of jokes and again this i mean there's a there'll be a taste issue there he's not for everyone but he does a tremendous job of framing kind of he, he sort of does almost a verbal equivalent of the Stuart lee drawing a circle around the stage this is a sacred space kind of thing he does um uh, a slightly uh more accessible shall we say version of that at the top which was that was very inspiring to see um and also just an incredibly nice person i mean i've interviewed him on the show a few years ago but um uh, really generous with his time and um, and just full of ideas. So anyway, that's that's me just riffing on uh, Jimmy Carr being much nicer than probably a lot of you expect. But you've got to you've got to get his book. It's called Before and Laughter, which is not the best thing about it. Um, it's on Audible, and uh, I'm going to be bringing you probably I would say ninety minutes worth. I'm doing a kind of uh, a jive bunny mega mix, if you will, of those five conversations that we had, and I hope to bring you that before Christmas. That will be a long edit as a try and choose the best bits from all five um so that's coming out soon i realize that's a bit pluggy isn't it it's not really the post amble i just told you you weren't getting and then promised you but um there's a lot on my head continues to revolve at speed and i'm only just realizing i should have done a bloody mail shot on monday and i've made a commitment to it so i'm gonna have to do it before the end of the week which is frankly painful so if you're on the mailing list which you can join at those websites um, stuartgoldsmith.com and comedianscomedian.com both have a place to join the, the mailing list you can get the Acaster Zoom Q&A video uh, for joining up and um, and you'll get a really frustrated sod this mail out from me later in the week okay thanks for listening bye for now <laughs>